Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey friends, welcome to Tennis and Bagels podcast, and uh, this is a podcast about everything tennis, from recreational to pro, and just, we have today a really special guest again with us, uh, Peter. Peter, how are you doing today? I'm well, thank you. How are you guys doing? I'm good, and uh, uh, Vansh is here again, and uh, we're going to have a really special announcement for Vansh later on, so stay tuned. But Vansh, how are you doing today as well? I'm doing splendid on this early Sunday morning. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Andre. Uh, I'm excited for today's podcast yeah. special. Awesome. So, uh, Peter, can you just introduce yourself a little bit, and so so that our listeners know just a little bit more of like who you are? I'm Peter Bodo. I'm the actual uh, tennis writer for ESPN.com. I've worked most of my adult life in tennis. I was a senior writer at Tennis Magazine. I've written a pile of books, and um, I guess that's about it. And I'm here to cover the U.S. Open this 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 year, of course. As always, that's amazing. So let's get ready for uh, a few sets of questions that we have. We've got it sets like tennis. So let's go. Um, uh, Vansh, would you like to start on that one? Sure. So this is the first set, and it's going to be focused on your career, Peter. So um, obviously, you are a seasoned professional. You've covered the sport for many years. So maybe just tell us a little bit about your your journey and you, maybe how your tennis career began. Some of the highlights of your job so far? Well, the way it began, I often get uh, I often get email or queries from young people who want to, who you know think that I've got the greatest job on earth, uh, which of course is not true. But uh, sometimes, it, comparatively speaking, it sometimes does feel that way. But uh, you know, and uh, they they wonder how I got into the business, and they're eager to get into it and eager to become tennis journalists. And you know, unfortunately, I have to tell them that the reality is that worked for me favorably for me but it's different for, for anyone now trying to get into the business. Uh, I, I was really getting out of college in 1971 at a time when tennis was really booming, and I did play the game. Uh, I had never any intention of becoming professional. I didn't play for ranking. I did play in little local tournaments for fun. But, um, you know, the opportunity was there because it was in the middle of what they call the tennis boom. A lot of the young listeners probably don't even remember that, but there was a tremendous surge of interest in tennis. It was shortly after... Of course, the game went open um, in 1960, what was it, 769? Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure now the dates get a little confusing, but um, after the game went open, suddenly the floodgates opened and everyone became crazy for tennis and they began you know, uh, promoting tournaments left and right. The Australian guys, Rod Laver, John Newcomb, they had this great aura of, um, of they really represented tennis as this sort of, you know, really classy, manly sport, and it just took off from there. So anyway, that was my opportunity uh, was I started covering tennis for a 
small local newspaper in New Jersey, fresh out of college. Uh, and it was only, I was only, I was lucky because I was able to attend the U.S. Open. It was close. It didn't cost them a lot of money to send me. I just drove every day. And therefore, um, eventually, you know, one thing led to another. I met some people at the tournament there who saw my work and got to know me a little bit and suggested other people to potentially write for. And that's how it worked out. But, you know, the thing is, there was opportunity, abundant opportunity. I really began with shortly after my newspaper days um, with Tennis Magazine. It was only a couple of years after I started covering tennis. And they had a tremendous hunger for content, and we just had a great relationship for, you know, probably ended up 25, 30 years with them. So that's kind of the short version. What a long version. <laughs> no, really uh, excellent. That's that's really interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. That's perfect. Yeah. The uh, Well, let's, let's – so uh, you, you mentioned that you have uh, – sorry? Uh, no, go ahead, Andre, um, if you can ask the next one. Yeah, sure. So uh, – yeah, so Pete, you, you mentioned you, you've, written, you've written a few books as well. So I have two here that uh, were recommended even by Vanch. Tennis for Dummies with uh, Patrick McEnroe and Pete Sampras' book, A Champion's Mind. So can you just uh, tell us a bit, a bit about those books in particular? Or maybe if you have like a, like a favorite one that you've, have you've uh, read or written? Well, uh, I think the best book I wrote was The Courts of Babylon. Uh, and... Uh, that's, uh, you know, I, I don't want to blow my own horn, but uh, a lot of people speak very highly of that book. It's gotten great reviews. I mean, it's been out for, I don't know, 20 years or something now, but it's uh, really my own personal personal essays on my era in tennis. I thought basically when it was published you know, around the year 2000, I thought maybe it would be my farewell to tennis because, um, you know, it seemed like I had, I said everything I wanted to say in that book about the people I'd worked with. You know, everyone, including from Jimmy Ponders to John McEnroe to Arthur Ashe to Chris Everett, Martina. Uh, I wrote about them very frankly, uh, and I wrote about the game or where I thought the game was, where the game came from, where it was going. Um, and, you know, I thought that was going to be my swan song, maybe. But as it turns out, uh, people kept wanting me to work for them. And, um, and uh, you know, here I am today. So I think that's really, I think, my best book. I mean, A Champion's Mind, the Pete Sampras book, I think is a lovely book. But, you know, it's Pete's story. It's not my story. So, uh, you know, of course, your own project, the one you put your heart and soul into rather than, you know, uh, doing it with somebody else is really always closer to your heart. For sure. Yeah, um, that's a that's a great synopsis there. Um, so my next question is, you know, certainly from a from a fan's perspective, uh, when a Grand Slam starts, me as a fan, I tend to get a lot of FOMO, uh, you know, because with the overwhelming amount of matches and so many matches to watch and so much coverage. So I guess, you know, walk us through some of the specifics of your, your day-to-day life, you know, when you're covering these majors. Well, it's tricky. You know, you have to be selective for one thing, of course. And you also, of course, have to have an eye out for the good story. Now, I mean, it, you know, and it depends on who you work for, what kind of material you're writing. Are you writing a column? Are you covering news? Uh, you know, these are all different ways to approach this. But, I mean, it's things like you really look at the draw, let's say day one of a Grand Slam, the day the draw comes out, you know, which is always a few days before the event begins, um, you know, you look through the draws and you and, and you look at really what the most compelling matches are. And then you, t- you target those or you target the more, most compelling stories. I mean, if you get a case of a guy who's, you know, maybe from a country that's never had a player at a Grand Slam, you know, maybe you decide to focus on him and write a story about him. But, of course, that really depends also on what your editors want and uh, what they're doing. I mean, the, the, the tough thing in my business, in a sense, is that, 
it's it's a very let's face it, it's very star oriented um, sport. So fundamentally, on the day when Serena's playing, uh, you know, you know, everybody wants a Serena story kind of. And the same with Djokovic, Federer, never, you know, not to mention Federer, of course, he's maybe at the top of the pile in that sense. So, right. you know, you have to really, you know, balance the desires of your audience, the desires of your editors, and your own sense of what makes a good story um, on a daily basis. And just review what's coming up, and, you, you, you know, you pick your slots, and you discuss it with your editor, and say, well, okay, today I think we ought to be looking at this, that, and the other thing. Then you have to be ready if something big happens it changed, you know, if the number two seed loses, number two women's seed loses, and you're supposed to be writing Serena, but the number two seed loses, Halep loses, you may end up doing a Halep story that day instead. It all depends. Yeah. For sure. Cool. So um, we have, moving on to the next set, since you're, you've done really nicely for your, uh, your career, um, which, by the way, seems like an amazing thing, even though you said it's not the best job in the world, I would still love to have it. Um, for a second set, we have pandemic tennis. So, like, well, obviously this year was completely abnormal in a lot of ways. So, Vansh has a, a little question that he, he wanted to ask about COVID-19, essentially how things are going in that direction. Uh, yeah, no, no, for sure. So, I guess if we're talking a little bit about the pandemic uh, you know, obviously, since this bombshell was dropped and Indian Wells got cancelled and COVID happened, and you know, tennis has been quite a roller coaster of emotions, especially the last five or six six months. You know, I'm I'm curious uh, from your perspective, how do you think tennis has handled the pandemic? Given the global nature of the game, uh, is a huge challenge, and not to mention the competing interests of all the different tennis entities with the ATP, WTA, ITF, and the four majors. Uh, so there has been talk of an ATP WTA merger. I'm curious, like, what is your take on that? And do you think that would be a good thing for the tours to merge? And would it be a more inclusive and, you know, one united product for the fans? Well, first of all, I think uh, I actually have to say everyone always focuses on the fact that tennis has so many different constituencies and so many different fiefdoms. But fundamentally, I think they've done a terrific job getting together and figuring it out. They have had meetings. Every, all the stakeholders have really been all in all the meetings, and all of them have brought their unique perspective to it. So while you know some people could easily say, "Oh, well, the problem with tennis is yada yada yada," and and you know start talking about the different stakeholders, I think actually it's it's really has not hurt the game in terms of recovery from the pandemic um, at all. Um, in terms of the ATP WTA merger, I think. Um, you know, look, there are some real problems with that, and I'll be very frank with you. It's all about money, and you, usually when people, you know, beat around a bush, that's usually what the issue is. And the fact is that the ATP generates revenues, uh, you know, it, it, on the tour in significantly higher, significantly higher revenues than a WTA does, and it has more events, it has more premium events too. So, you know, that you know, a lot of the the ATP doesn't really want to see a lot of its money allocated you know, to WTA projects or to lift the WTA up necessarily because, you know, I mean, they almost went broke when they had the, you know, when Hamburg moved, when Hamburg lost its status as a master's. Right. And, and they sued the, the, they sued the ATP. The ATP almost went bust. And that kind of thing can happen to either the ATP or the WTA because they actually aren't making huge amounts of money. The ATP is doing much better, in fact, than the WTA. So I, I think that the realistic thing here, what you have to really look at is what are the areas where they can't cooperate? 
and where can they really, you know, they could, you know, little simple things that are just maybe seem cosmetic, but actually are very good for, you know, for the way the public perceives a sport, you know, blending the two together, having one logo, having, you know, having a one record book, having, you know, a consistent way to identify tournaments. I mean, you know, let's face it, the WTA with the, you know, the premier five, the premier mandatory, it's a much less accessible, fan-friendly, uh, you know, designation of tournaments than the ATPs. You know, ATP Masters 1000, and 500, and the 250. Those are the only three. It's pretty easy to see which are the most important, which aren't. So those are all things that you know that that, that are you know, you know, could really there are things that could really change for the better if they merged. Uh, the, the finances and how they're going to work that out and who's going to you know benefit from what. Is, is a big issue, uh, but overall and above that, because I don't want to sound like I'm trashing the WTA here, I think both tours now acknowledge that essentially the most successful tournaments are the ones that have both men and women there. It's really, which you're really talking about the majors and Indian Wells in Miami and the other, um, you know, Madrid and the other uh, com big combined events. Everybody sees that as a net win for the sport. So I think looking to the future, that's really what you want to be looking at. If there's going to be a merger, they're pretty much going to have to, you know, I don't know, maybe blow up the current calendars, uh, which, of course, are, are phenomenally difficult for reasons we can go into later if you want. But um, they'd have to kind of really add a lot more combined events, and then that would actually improve and, and you know, and, and everybody wins in that sense because those events end up generating more revenue and, be, and being more successful. Yeah, um, that that makes that makes sense. Uh, Andre, do you want to? Uh, yeah, like you just mentioned a bit about money, and that was like obviously one of the most the biggest thing for at least people outside of the uh, tennis industry, uh, and, and how like they were getting a lot of um, the the ones that were making really a lot of headlines were just how um, players outside um, top hundred, top two hundred fifty, they were really struggling financially. So, uh, would you would you think that tennis needs uh, maybe a commissioner to oversee um, the governing bodies and also make sure that like players outside of those um, areas of uh, comfort can make a sustainable living um, in in playing tennis? Well, you know, you say does tennis need a commissioner? And you know, to have a commissioner, you would you would fundamentally it used to have a commissioner. Basically, you had the men's tennis council, the pro council, many years ago. The history of this gets very, very complicated. I think the thing to remember here is that right now, you know, who's going to want to give anything up? And, you know, that's really the issue. For instance, you you know, these people who own the licenses and the franchises on these tournaments, you can't just automatically create a new tournament, you know, in the third week of April because you think you can bring a lot of people to Arizona for a combined event because those events, they're already on the events on the calendar with people who own those dates, essentially. It, tennis is like a big condominium in that sense, you know. Everyone owns it, owns a piece of it, and then you have your condo board, which is like the ATP, WTA, and Grand Slam committee and stuff, doing, Grand Slam board, doing, you know, you know, kind of ironing out the wrinkles and the kinks. So, I mean, I, I think it's unrealistic. It's a little bit like saying, wouldn't it be great if a horse could, you know, if a horse, a horse could have remain like a lion? Well, you know, it's not going to happen. Um, and I don't see it happening anytime in the near future. The Grand Slams are incredibly strong, and they're the lifeblood of the sport. They're the things most people uh, care about. The ATP and WTA don't really have enough bargaining power, in a sense, to take the game over. You know, people right. talk about unions, and that you know that creates problems in and of its own. However, there are clearly a lot of problems, um, but I think we'd have to narrow this down a little more specifically. Um, 
you know, to talk about those things. Sure. Um, well, shifting gears a little bit, um, you know, responsibility for tennis players during the pandemic to follow up COVID guidelines and precautions has been a has been a struggle, I guess. So, you know, and we saw what happened at the the Adria Tour. I'm curious. I was thinking about this the other day. Do you think the self-centered mindset that tennis players have, given that you know, there's that in order to get to the top, I think inevitably, it's all about the player himself. It's all about coping with the pressure. You know, whether it be you know, you, you pay your coach's salary, you know, you're booking your own flights, sponsor commitments, just knowing that your parents sacrificed everything for you to be in this position. I'm curious, is that, uh, is, is that something, is that mindset a little bit tr- troublesome in a pandemic uh, when you're talking about the COVID guidelines? And No, I, di- I disagree with you entirely. I don't think there was any, I mean, clearly Djokovic made a big mistake. Uh, mm-hmm. He was well-intentioned, of course, you know, he wanted to raise some money for charity and, and you know, he, he does have this kind of macho thing to show that, you know, we're, you know, we, we don't need this, you know, we can get through this, we can, you know, just will our way to success or whatever. So yes, the age tour was a disaster, but tennis players in general have been very good. Uh, so if you look at the other events that have happened, you look at the exhibitions, you look at the world team tennis, you know, of course, Danielle Collins went off and had to drive to Whole Foods, but she got kicked out of the tournament. And most of the players really, have been really observing all the social distancing rules and all of the uh, protocols. You know, they've, they, you know, they've, I think, done, done a very good job. I think it's a big problem. The travel aspect of it, even within the United States, where certain states demand quarantine if you come in from other states, those are formidable obstacles. But I think the players in general have been very, very good. And here at the um, Western and Southern Open, the U.S. Open combination that I'm I'm attending currently. I was out there yesterday for the first day of the Western and Southern Open. The players have been, been, been very diligent and have both spoken, have both talked the talk and walked the walk in terms of, you know, doing everything they can to manage the, uh, the pandemic, the threat of the pandemic, and still play tennis. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, curious question, Andre. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's it's interesting that like you say that because it, it really opens up um, a lot of uh, um it's it's hard to uh, follow tennis if you're not really into the the, the the industry and sometimes you can get like most of your news through Twitter and uh, you know how how not ideal that is yeah so so um there was one player even especially through Twitter and Instagram that was calling out way too many players and. Raising polemics as always, uh, Nick Kyrgios. Uh, do you have any thoughts on him calling out all of this, or do you think you also completely disagree with him and what you were saying? Oh, I completely disagree with him, and I think you know, I sadly, well, all right, I shouldn't say he was completely disagreeing with him. I think his calling out uh, people who ha- who were not observing the protocols. I mean, Zverev has been kind of kind of an idiot, really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> clearly made a big mistake with the Adria Tour. The other guys, though, Team and Chorich and those guys, they were just kind of innocent bystanders who ended up, you know, being exposed to COVID. I mean, Dominic Team didn't test positive like Chorich did. But, I mean, those, those guys were just following the, the leader of the band. And I think, I think Djokovic, through a certain amount of hubris, you know, didn't understand, you know, uh, you know how, how big a risk he was taking by, by having that tournament and the way he had it. So, yeah, no, there are people of – who have made mistakes, but I mean, then um, by contrast, you look at everyone else. I mean, it, you know, it's a big sport with a lot of players. And I wouldn't, I, I don't want to make it seem like I disagree with you about the essential selfishness of the sport. Yeah, it's a, it's a very individualistic 
uh, sport mm -hmm. where players are selfish. But really, you know, the players are, you know, selfishness, you can express your selfishness just as much, in my opinion, by being absolutely diligent about the protocols. Like, Kyrgios is expressing his selfishness. First of all, I'm not sure the guy wants to play tennis. Second of all, he's not thinking about necessarily about the health of the sport as well as the health of the individuals because of the pandemic. I mean, you also have to think, you know, how's the sport going to survive? You know, who, how are we going to have tournaments? Who's going to... How are people going to make money? So, I mean, you know, I think the USJ has done a magnificent job here so far. Hopefully, it'll continue this way. I mean, they're providing opportunities. They're actually rebuilding the sport and finding ways to keep the sport going. I mean, you know, Kyrgios is sitting at home playing basketball and, and criticizing yeah. people. You know, that doesn't help anybody. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree with yeah. you there. So That's a good point, yeah. And speaking mm -hmm. of, you know, bringing props to the U, major props to the USTA and the US Open for for doing what they're doing and providing a livelihood for the players. But shifting gears to, I'm sure you you heard about the Patrick Muratoglu uh, Ultimate Tennis Showdown and his thoughts on that with the, with the format and the purpose was to bring new fans to the sport, you know, renew its fan base. He claimed that the average age of tennis fans is 61 and, you know, people maybe don't have the attention span to watch full tennis matches now and it's not as exciting and they all play a similar brand of tennis. I mean, I guess based on that marketing alone and, and the UTS that we saw unfold, I mean, what is your take about UTS? And do you think there's maybe a room for this kind of a league or a separate format to shift to the tour? And, you know, do you agree with Patrick there on that? Well, you know, it, it depends. It's a very complicated, multifaceted question you'll ask. You know, it's, uh, there are a lot of different alleys we can go down on this one. But fundamentally... Uh, I, I like Patrick. I like what he did uh, in terms of uh, starting this thing. I think it was an interesting format. Uh, you know what's funny about all these formats? Uh, mm -hmm. World Team Tennis or UTS or the Team Exhibition or some of these, you know, uh, best of best of three with a, with a super tiebreaker, uh, match tiebreaker to end it. You know, the, the right people always end up winning. Do you notice that? <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not... It, a critic would, of, of these new formats and new experiments, would, you know, would probably say, well, look, it, it's really not good because, you know, we wouldn't have a Roger Federer, you know, but the fact is you would because the best players tend to win no matter what the rules are because of the better players. Right. So I think that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. I think the real problem here mm -hmm. is the structure of tennis. And I'm not, I personally have for a long time felt and always lobbied for a limited number of tournaments, much smaller than we have now much smaller calendar, and a lot more special events, team events, exhibitions. I mean, one of the, you know, talk about weaknesses in the sport. I mean, an American city like Pittsburgh, which is, a, you know, a big city, doesn't have any tennis. I mean, right. there's, you know, there's no tournament there. And yet you have a tournament in a tiny resort town, Kitzbühel. I mean, I don't know how much that moves the ball forward for tennis. I mean, I think certainly television helps alleviate and mitigate for that because anybody can watch it on TV. But, you know, I, so I always felt that the game really, you know, the four, it revolves around the four sons of the Grand Slams. And those things are, are kind of written in stone. But the, the format of tennis, the current format of tennis, especially when you're playing full-on best of three, et cetera, uh, you know, draw of 32 or, or, or even bigger, you know, you, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, these tournaments of stands are empty. I mean, that doesn't mm -hmm. seem very efficient to me. Um, and I think coming up with good solutions to that would be, you know, somewhat challenging, especially if you want to keep a lot of 
keep paying a lot of people to play tennis. I mean, those are those are real issues. But I mean, somehow the you know, I, I think team events is, you know, the Europe, the leagues they play like in, in, in France and in Germany, the club leagues. Those, I think, were all wonderful things. I'm a big fan of team tennis. I love the idea of, of you know, having the whole period of two months, let's say, where the teams are, where you're having a, a team playoffs and team championships, whether it's nations based or whether it's strictly, you know, franchises or whatever. So there is, you know, I, I think there's a lot of room to, to reconsider things. But again, fundamental problem. You know, all the calendar is fully occupied. Those people own, own those we- weeks. They have contracts with the ATP. Hamburg almost destroyed, you know, almost forced the ATP to go broke because it didn't want to do what the ATP wanted it to do when changing dates with Madrid. So, boy, how do you, disma- how do you dismantle a beast? You tell me. Yeah, and we do have three team, full-on team events now with the ATP Cup, Davis Cup, and also the Labor Cup, which occupies that weekend in the calendar. So mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. But uh, yeah, we're on to the final yeah. set of we're on to the final question in the second set. So yeah, like, moving moving on, like maybe trying to segue a little bit into the the third, um, a, a bit more about tennis. So the the American men's tennis hasn't really been seeing much success in the in the slams or even in the in the men's route really. Uh, so Andy Roddick was the last one to last male player to win a Grand Slam uh, from America. So, why do you why do you think this is? Why do you think America, well, really the United States, is not stepping up with uh, players? Well, I think I think American youth have too many other options. Um, mm. A little bit complacent. Uh, look, tennis has never been a hugely popular sport here. Uh, you know, it's always you know in, in places like France and 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 even Italy and many other places in the world. Uh, you know, it's it's a second or third most popular sport. Uh, so there's a whole larger base. We're not attracting, um, you know, the greatest athletes, uh, you know, to tennis. And we also, I think, the other problem, of course, is that, uh, and Patrick Mortagel has often spoke about this. I've written about this and talked to Patrick about this and quoted him about these things. You know, it's not perceived as being cool. And that's where Patrick got that number that Vance mentioned about the, you know, the average age being 61 and, and things like you know that sort of thing, you know, it, you know, young people aren't seeing it as a dynamic, exciting sport like, the, for instance, now the NBA I think is really kind of in the forefront of that. So I think those are real problems for tennis. Conversely, though, the women's game has really developed a much stronger following, um, you know, in, in recent times, and they have actually, if you. They, some of their statistics, I can't quote them offhand, but if you look at how much their presence has grown and how much how many how much more social media has been dedicated to women's tennis and how they've really farmed that aspect of the youth culture, as it were, the millennials and younger people, and really connected with them, you know, with through the ways those people are actually consuming uh, both media as well as athletics, uh, they're doing they're right out there. So. It's not entirely true. And in the emerging tennis markets, like in South American places like that, tennis is very popular with young people. So it's really the American audience that's kind of gone gray. And that actually obviously dovetails very much with the sense of, uh, you know, lack of American players. So that's, you know, it's, it's a very mixed bag there. Yeah, a couple of follow-ups on that. Just uh, great points. The, do you think, um, you know, maybe it's could be the lack of clay court uh, paralysis on the American side, or you know, who of the young 
current Americans impresses you the most? Are you most hopeful of? We have Tommy Paul, Taylor Fritz, Riley Opelka, Francis Tiafo, and obviously, you know, the young Brandon Nakashima from San Diego. So. Well, you know, I worship at the altar of power. So for me, I think Riley Opelka's got the most um, got the most upside of all those guys. I, I also like Taylor Fritz a lot. I'm just not sure he's got quite enough of everything to really be that absolute, you know, Grand Slam champion, whereas a guy like Opelka could actually, you know, built his way to a title. He, he even told me in February at the U.S. at the um, at the New York Open, he said his, his career goal is to win a Grand Slam. That's what he wants to do. And, you know, he's kind of an interesting, smart guy uh, who I think, you know, might be able to get that job done. He can, you know, go on a hot streak and, and do that. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be a big international star for many years. But I think I think he's got the most upside. Uh, beyond that, though, I think, you know, I think Taylor is a very, very good little player. I'm curious to see how he does because he spent a lot of time in this offseason working on his physique, getting a little bit stronger. Mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, with a little bit more power, you know, a little bit more, a little bit more consistency, a little, little bit tougher, mental, all those little incremental things, I think he could actually be an exceptionally good player. Francis, I don't know. I, I think Francis is a little bit lost, to tell you the truth. I, yeah. you know, I think Francis got a lot of attention early in his career. He's he's a wonderful story, you know. He's people love him, uh, you know. Unfortunately, people love him to death in terms of you know his com- competitive mm-hmm. stuff. It's I, I think it's really difficult to sometimes to, uh, you know, to to handle that. You know, when you get that level of support and fame and everything, you know, you ha- you have to back that up. All you know, you have to consistently and, and fully and back it up and if you ever hit a little glitch or a bump in a road suddenly that creates a lot of pressure and either you walk away from that pressure and just kind of go your own way and do whatever you're going to do which i think is kind of what he's doing or you feel that pressure and it makes it that much harder to you know to advance and to to get your game back but i think he's got a lot of talent i think he could do it i think he really um i i think he's got very good advice by the way at octagon so i think he'll get through it but i think it's you know there's there's no free lunch, as people always say, you know, and so I, I think he's he's waking up. He's had to wake up to the fact that, you know, he, you know, everyone's wanted him to do so well. And that maybe has taken a little bit of the edge off. For sure. Yeah. Um, so now moving on to our, our third set. This is more geared towards the U.S. Open and Cincinnati currently going on. Uh, so I, I'm curious, you know, we had day one uh, yesterday of the main draw, Cincinnati. I mean, what did you make of the New York bubble and you know, do you think these protocols in play at the U.S. Open, like how confident are you that, you know, players can go through this full three-week stretch and overcome this challenge, not only with COVID, but also the physical and mental challenge with all that tennis and uh, keeping in the bubble and the, the restrictions and, your, you know, your thoughts on day one, maybe? Well, you know, it's funny. The bubble has been a very, very mixed thing. And a lot of the players who I talked to, Tsitsipas was one of them, uh, Coco Goff and a couple of the others, you know, they say that, you know, actually, the shut, the lockdown conditions, not being able to go out to eat, not being able, able to take a cab into New York City and, and have a night out on your off night or anything like that. Mm-hmm. These have all been kind of positive things. I mean, you know, tennis players for, from the beginning of time, you know, the great ones anyway, have always wanted to, you know, have their own time. They've wanted to stay apart from everybody else. They wanted things to be quiet. They wanted everything to be controllable and quiet all around them. Every player on earth will tell you that during, you know, especially at Grand Slams and a big tournament. Well, they've got that now automatically, you know. I mean, hey, uh, it's not like to have to sit in a, in, in, a, in a hotel room, you know, staring at four empty walls. I mean, these guys, they, they have done a, a great job, the USTA, in creating 
all kinds of distractions and games and, you know, they can get any kind of food they want ordered in the whole nine yards. So, I mean, I think essentially, you know, uh, Tsitsipas, in fact, said, you know, maybe it's really good to be so quiet. It might, it might help everybody's game out to some degree, or at least everybody's mentality and, and focus and eagerness. So, you know, I think, uh, I think it's, I think these guys are so dying to play that I don't think the lack of spectators is going to be a factor at, at some level. I mean, I think these guys really yeah. are all, all these men and women are raring to go. They, they just want to play and they're going to compete and they're not going to like look around and say, oh, there are no fans. Why should I play? They're going to be out there doing their best. Yeah, for sure. Um, just just a little bit. You, you mentioned the players, but I'm curious um, in terms of the press and uh, as a reporter, uh, does it change at all the way you, I guess, cover the tournament? I know you mentioned you're you're going to be at New you're you're at New York and you're you're covering this thing live, but it so many reporters not being able to to be there does that kind of change the way the, the tennis is looked at? Well, you know, oddly enough, I'm going to be covering it just like those other people remotely. I'll be sitting in the in the media center like I was, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be looking at a Zoom call, just like a, a reporter, a colleague of mine, it will be looking at that Zoom call from Italy. And uh, that's, you know, that's going to be it. And we're, you know, we're, there's going to be no one-on-one interviews, at least not um, face-to-face. So they, even that will be done by Zoom. So there's, there's a lot of, uh, you know, a, a lot of ifs, you know, about the whole situation. But it's not going to change the way I cover it. I mean, essentially, I mean, the, the COVID stuff, you know, the safety protocols, the actual atmosphere at the tournament without fans and everything, those are all going to be, you know, repetitive parts of most of the stories we talk about. And they're going to come up in every press conference. Somebody look, if the number six seed on either side loses, the first question is you know, going to be, do you think you would have done better if there were fans here? You know, we know that. So fundamentally, I think we just keep pursuing the same stories. It's going to be a little harder to get our work done because, you know, we can't even buttonhole people in the hallways now, which is the way I've always worked in my life is, you know, right. the, you know, but so none of that. It's all going to be Zoom calls and stuff. But uh, on the other hand, there are a lot fewer people. There's a lot more room on the grounds. I, you know, I had a lovely day Saturday. It was like, you know, I was thinking, in fact, I'll probably end up writing about this. But, you know, for a tennis fan, it was like dying and going to heaven if you were a tennis fan, because yeah. you walk into the grounds the national tennis of the grounds. There's nobody there except all the players, you know, I mean, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, where, you know, what, what happened here? You know, there are a couple people like me and other technic, technical people, broadcast people, whatever. But I mean, in terms of the usual crush of people, everything, nothing. Hmm. That's, that's, that's really interesting. And, uh, with, with the, the bubble is, it's obviously we haven't, it isn't the, this isn't the first tournament that we have with the, this, this current situation. So how do, uh, what did you f- think about uh, Lexington, Prague, and Palermo? And do you feel optimistic uh, having followed up uh, from those tournaments up to, to now? Oh, yeah, I'm very optimistic. I, I think those tournaments, in fact, showed Lexington. I mean, if you watch Serena at Lexington and the way she fought for yeah. a couple of matches, there's no question that she was, uh, you know, in fact, I think she's one of the ones that could really benefit from this bubble because my feeling has been for uh, for a couple of years now that the whole the whole Serena mythology and, and popularity and everything in, at, in New York at the U.S. Open has always really hurt her. Yeah. She may not have partaken of, of you know, of, 
of it. She may not have, you know, spent a lot of time mingling and chatting with the celebrities who come to see her play. But all that stuff takes a toll. There's kind of like a white noise around her at the U.S. Open. And I think in that regard, this time may be a little bit different. You know, she's not going to have all that distraction all the time. So I think I, I think that's a valuable thing. And when you saw the way she played in Lexington and the other people played and you saw World Team Tennis even, people loved it. People, you know, the players had a great time and they played their hearts out. So I'm very optimistic. I mean, one of the things... One of the things that may come out of this, and this is going to be an interesting thing maybe to write about later on if it proves out to be true, tennis may not need spectators. You know, I mean, you know, we, we all want to go there and watch. It's a privilege, you know, to, for a tennis fan to be able to go and sit and watch. But do you really have to? I mean, you know, it could, you know, who knows where the world is heading anyway with this stuff. I mean, we may end up, it may end up being a sport that's only televised, that there's never going to be player, you know, spectators anywhere of course it's a big revenue stream that's another issue but you know what i mean it's uh, i mean it's not like these players are not playing or not motivated or or can't bring your a games because there are no fans because that's already been proven to be false sure yeah no and you mentioned you know obviously that players would cope uh, you think players would cope well certainly with no fans i mean i'm curious in terms of a viewing perspective do you think tennis could maybe do a little bit more like with experimenting maybe with different camera angles on the tv or you know maybe adding some noise in the in the crowd, like for crowd noise, or like maybe take some inspiration from, you know, baseball or like the other sports going that have, you know, returned, I guess. Listen, there's going to be a lot of that at the U.S. Open. I'm really probably not at liberty to sort of divulge it really at this point, but I've been told a lot of things are going to be happening at the U.S. Open. A lot of things are going to try to do to enhance the viewing experience to compensate for the lack of fans. And yes, there will be, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of reviewing and readjusting and, and tweaking and, and, and making some pretty big changes in some ways to the way tennis is being covered and has been covered. And that's another element that I think is going to be very telling to see what happens and how that affects tennis in the future. Because I think a lot of the way that the U.S. Open tele- telecast is going to go, you're going to see a lot of things that people are going to say, wow, that was kind of cool. You know, we want more of that. Hopefully we can have more of that in the future. And it may actually really transform the way tennis is, is covered, you know, and perhaps even the way it's presented. Yep. Uh, Andre, you want to take the last question in the, in the, in the set of the field? Sure. Yeah. So we have the asterisk that so many people are talking about, but it honestly, after hearing you pay, uh, um, speak. It definitely feels like the, the the asterisk thing is like less and less relevant right now. But what do you think about it? Like, what do you think about the whole thing of people saying that there will be an asterisk uh, next to the winner for both the slams and the U.S. Open? You know, I think it's baloney. I've always been sort of a believer in asterisks, in in, in limited use of asterisks. And you know, frankly, and Federer fans will never forgive me for this. Will hate me forever for this, and that's fine with me. But go ahead. Not being at the French Open is an asterisk. It doesn't take away Federer's title. It doesn't do anything, but it's an asterisk because I think everybody knows that if Nadal had been there, it could have been a whole different story. Nevertheless, uh, so I think it can apply asterisk judiciously. You know, top seed, you know, it hasn't happened recently, but, you know, top seed, you know, breaks a leg and can't play the final. That's an asterisk. No question about that. In this case, I don't think it is. Um, you know, Federer is out with injury for sure. The only guy really missing is is Nadal. And, um, you know, granted, he's defending champion. But still, you know, as Taylor Fritz said, said it yesterday and 
it really is the best explanation. He said, look, Novak Djokovic is here. He's a top seed. He's healthy and he's playing. What are you going to put an asterisk to? You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, he's in the draw. Sure. If somebody else wins, it's going to be an asterisk. Or if he wins, it's going to, if, if he wins, it's not an asterisk because he won this a lot. And if somebody else wins, somebody will have beaten Djokovic, who is so good. So, you know, I mean, I think that's a very, very valid point. And you have a lot of good guys. You have, you know, some some obviously very high quality players. Daniel, you know, Medvedev last year's finalist is in there and stuff. So, no, I don't I don't believe in the asterisk at all. In, no. in fact, if you add the whole fan thing and if if, in fact, it seems that the lack of fans does not make a big difference, that's even further proof that should, there should be no asterisk. Sure. Great. So now we've completed three sets uh, and we're moving on to the fourth one with uh, these are more player specific questions. And the first one is about our number one seed, Novak Djokovic, obviously. Um, there's been a lot of talk about his off-the-court uh, things that have gone on in the last six months with, you know, maybe PR errors or things like that with his anti-vax sentiment. Obviously, the injury tour, we don't need to go into that. But his, you know, his concern initially about not playing the U.S. Open with the with the entourage being too strict and, uh, you know, refusing to get tested in the Serbia after the Adria tour. But, you know, I, I mean, I'm curious, like you, like his first press conference, I mean, and his, his interviews so far, I mean, like uh, he didn't seem to be backing down from his from his Adria tour position and, you know, claimed to be, call it a, a witch hunt, I guess. I mean, I'm, I'm curious, like, just on your thoughts on him and his journey the last six months, what is your general opinion? You've obviously covered him for many years. And do you think, you know, maybe there's a bias, slight bias in the media towards him? Is it fair to place all the blame on him? Does he maybe get the raw deal being the third wheel, you know, behind these guys that he's trying to chase down Federer and Nadal? You know, I don't think he's got the third. I don't think he gets. I don't think he gets uh, a raw deal because he's a third wheel. I think it's mm-hmm. the kind of third wheel that he is. You know, he inserted okay. himself right off the bat. He was, you know, fairly arrogant as a young man coming out. Look, he comes from this very macho culture in Serbia. You know, and again, you know, it's it's always dangerous to generalize, but still, right. you know, those are a hard people. They've, you know, been through a lot. They, you know, you, all you got to do is watch their soccer fans or, or whatever, and. Um, and so I think he came on very, very strong, which I think was not the best way for a third wheel to come on. And it was all, there were a number of you know, sort of bumps along the way. The whole thing with his thinking he would have predicting he had Nadal beaten at the French Open and when his respiratory problems kicked in. There was right. the whole thing with, with his injuries and Rada calling him out about his injuries and, and yeah. you know, like humiliating him in public in, in a sense. Um, and I think he's always, you know, he's always wanted to be loved. And I think that often hmm. makes people more skeptical of you than, than he would be otherwise. I think, he's, I think he's worked very hard. I mean, I, I know some Italian colleagues of mine really never liked him. And I really never always wondered why. And I, I kind of, you know, I kind of asked him. And, and, they, and they said they felt that he wasn't authentic. They felt that he wasn't, you know, he wasn't happy being who he was and just that. He, he you know, he had to try to be like, be like Federer. He had to try to be, you yeah. know, more of a star. He had to, you know, all these things. And they just don't feel that he's that he, he's he's authentic as a human being. I don't necessarily agree with that at all. But uh, that's that's a feeling. And I think a lot of people, especially in this phase when Djokovic, you know, has really built himself up as a as a kind of an ambassador and 
you know, he talks like he's a member of some subcommittee of the third directorate of the UN on human something or other, because you know, <laughs> on and on and on. And so, I mean, I think those are all things that, you know, you know, make a difference. And, and in this country, I'll tell you very honestly, the accent and the name, you know, that's, it's, it's much harder to, to accept that, uh, you know, from, from a, for a nation as homogenous as, as the U.S. has traditionally been. You know, we're, we're not, not accustomed to that. So, I mean, I think there have been a lot of reasons that Djokovic is told um, by him a little bit. And, you know, his Adria tour, as you mentioned, was kind of a big goof on his part. I mean, yeah, his intentions were good, but he man really messed it up. Sure. Yeah, so speaking of Djokovic, is there anyone you, you know, think in the field that can, you know, stop him from winning it this year? You mentioned Medvedev. There's obviously Dominic Thiem, Alexander Zverev, Stefano Tsitsipas. I mean, you know, do you, do are we going with Djokovic or the field here? What's your take? You just answered your own question. I don't know. I think, uh, I don't know. I, and, and to tell you the truth, I've always hated making predictions. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, I tell people that I'm there to, to, to cover and comment on what happens, not to predict what will happen. And I just don't point it to tell you the truth. Some people love that, you know, that punditry and predict making predictions, and I don't. Because, you know, I know at the bottom, I know at the bottom of it all, anything can happen. Very little has happened in tennis that's ever surprised me, really, at least in the past 20 years anyway. I mean, not, uh, I even, get this one, I even predicted Gomez beating Agassi in a French Open final. And... <laughs> You know, where that came from, I don't even know. But, you know, somebody forced me into it because they really wanted, you know, wanted wanted a prediction on it like we always have. So I'm not big on it, though. Speaking of Nadal, like, what are your thoughts on him skipping? Do you, do you agree with his decision? Do you think a lot of players also partake on that? In terms of a decision, what, to stay away? To, to stay away from well, the U.S., A lot yes. of players did not partake of that, actually. You know, everyone's here basically except Nadal. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the top six women in Nadal. <laughs> the top six women in Nadal are absent. You know, that's not yeah. a good headline for him. Uh, look, I, I think for him, you know, I, I'm not going to say he's in a special circumstance, but, you know, with his health problems in the past, yeah. his competence at the French Open, his, you know, desire to match Federer, you know, you can't really bl- you can't blame anybody for skipping it. It's you know, everyone you know everyone's making their choice, but I, I think strategically it was probably a pretty smart move on his part. Uh, did he you know did he take a bullet for the team like these other guys? No, uh, you know. So he decided he's you know he's gonna you know self interest overrode any concern, any other consideration in this case, and uh, and I think with everybody comes to that point. I think there would have been circumstances. You know, where Djokovic, I think, would have made the same decision. In fact, I'm not sure that if if the Adria Tour disaster hadn't been so big, that that he would have come. You know, uh, yeah, I think he was. I don't think he was terribly eager. But of course, he since then, yesterday in his press conference, he was explaining that, you know, he really always wanted to come here and he loves hard courts best of all, and that's why. Yeah. So he kind of explained away his earlier reluctance. But look, we all saw. We know what he was thinking. So who knows? You know, you can't second guess him on that. He changed his mind. Fine. He's here. That's a good thing. Nadal's not. That's fine, too. Sure. Yeah. And, uh, you know, going back to some of the other players, uh, you were born in Austria. uh, Is that correct? Yes. So, you know, obviously the last Grand Slam champion in Austria was uh, Thomas Muster. 
won the Roland Garros in 1995. And, you know, since then, the best Austrian player we've had is Dominic Team. So I'm curious. He's been in, around for the top in the top eight for the last four years, made three slam finals, came very close in Australia this year. I mean, is there... And obviously the pandemic didn't do him any favors. So what are, you know, what are you, what is your thoughts on him? Are you impressed with him? And, you know, what are you, are you bullish about his chances, especially the next couple of years, but also in, in both the U.S. and the French? Yeah, I am, because I think he's got the right temperament. I think he knows what he wants. I think he's focused on his, on his job. He's not, uh, he doesn't make excuses. You know, he's, he's very unlucky to have to have, you know, he's clearly the second best player on clay these days behind Nadal. And, yeah. Uh, Nobody could, should be ashamed of being second best in the doll on clay. So that's no question about that. I think his performance at the Australian Open was terrific. But, I mean, look, he's like up, you know, up against you know, one of the greatest players of all time there, too. So yeah. I, I don't think, you know, he, he just hasn't gotten that lucky break that would get him over the line. But I have no doubt that he, that he can and probably will do it. Um, you know, he's, he's very diligent. He's very realistic. He's got that kind of very you know, blunt Germanic assessment of things. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, and, and he's got a tremendous amount of upside. He's got the right kind of game too. And I think his coach has done, um, Masu did a wonderful job with him in terms of rounding out his game and getting him to play a little bit differently and saving a little bit more energy for himself. So he's no longer the guy 20 feet behind the baseline, just bashing away. I think that's all been, that's all been a plus. So yeah, he's, I mean, he's right, right there in line. Medvedev, I don't know about, you know. I mean, you know. Anyway, we can talk about him if you want to. But I think, I think, team is team to me has got the best credentials uh, for being the next Grand Slam winner outside the Big Four. Hmm. Yeah. No. Well said there, cool. um, Andre. You want to take the co You know, I actually wanted to uh, skip up to uh, the the question on uh, Venus and Serena matchup thirty one. How do you feel like? Uh, because we already mentioned a bit about like how it feels like the actual lack of fans and things seems to actually be benefiting um, Serena. And so what are your thoughts on the coming up for uh, Cincinnati and the U.S. Open in terms of the Williams sisters? Do you think maybe Serena has a chance or maybe Venus can go deeper this time in the U.S. Open? Uh, you know, I don't know. With Venus, it's difficult because at her age, I think, and with her physical conditions and stuff, I think... She's, you know, what happens, I think, as when players get older, you know, we're talking about mid to late 30s, uh, is I think they, they're just not capable of playing a succession of great matches often, you know, over and over. You know, they, they can basically, you know, pull it together, play two great matches, but in the third round, let's say first two rounds, third round, boom, down they go. You know, they... You know, they have a really bad day. You say, oh, my gosh, what happened? She was playing so well. That happens a lot with, with you know, what happened to Serena, in fact, when yeah. she lost the U.S. Open uh, last year. So, I mean, I think those are th those are real formidable obstacles. You can't, that's, you know, if time is the one opponent you're never going to beat. So, uh, I think if it's going to be difficult to string together the number of matches they need to win, I think it's great that they're both playing. Cincinnati, of course, Venus lost yesterday, but um, yeah. I think... Um, I think they're going to be, they certainly have enough experience. And in fact, Serena's shown all over and over how she can step back into the fray, uh, you know, really cold and do it. I'm not even sure. I'm not sure it's a good idea that she's playing Cincinnati. You know, I think, uh, yeah. 
you know, because plenty of times in the past she hasn't needed matches to find her end game. But of course, it's her decision, and it's just going to be a long slog if she ends up going deep in Cincinnati, you know, winning three, four matches, and then go bouncing right back with the U.S. Open with the seven matches. That that's going to be a pretty big assignment. Sure. Yeah. And do you think they're the matchup that we saw with them last week was that one of their best best matches? You think in a in a in a long time? Let's yeah, see. it was. Yeah, they played so many good matches. You know, it's you know, it's it's always a treat. I think I'm happy they've gotten over that situ- situation where they were really really uncomfortable playing each other. They seemed, mm-hmm. you know, they seemed pretty comfortable. They seemed very professional about playing each other. And I had always wondered, or in the earlier years, I said, you know, you know, they're both such great competitors and that clearly is why both of them have done so well but you just wonder at one point can't they just say hey you know this is great we're sisters let's go out and have a good time and who cares who wins you know there's never been that carefree thing as much as there's been you know this there's been kind of drama and um and you know a lot of uh sort of heartache and, and a lot of emotions involved but you know, does it have to be that way? I don't know. I mean, no, nobody else has ever produced a pair like Venus and Serena, which is one of the greatest stories in sports history. So right. who would you say? Yeah, um, and the last player I really want to talk about before we move into our fifth and final setting. In, you know, set. actually, I think we should start moving on to it because we're going short on time here. So I think, uh, why, don't, why don't we just move on uh, with uh, and take over for, uh, for um, all of your... Pete Sampras questions, which is, by the way, my favorite player from the 90s. There you go. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so um, I'm curious. Obviously, you've written, you've uh, helped with the memoir of Pete Sampras. And um, I'm, I'm just curious, your general, this might be a couple of questions. I'm curious, you know, given that the big three have su- surpassed him in his Grand Slam record, I mean, what do you think of his legacy? And you covered him. So, like, looking back at him as a player now, uh, you know, is there any interest? Is there wh- how would you see him? Uh, you know, after the big three, and what is your what is maybe your favorite moment from covering his career? Any particular moment that or insight that stands out on that? You know, I think oddly, oddly enough, I think that you know maybe the greatest contribution Pete ultimately made to the game was convincing everybody that the game hasn't changed that much despite the changes in equipment and the advent of the open tennis and the, the, the fact that everybody's improved so much. I think the fact that he showed, you know, he, he, I mean, look, when Pete Sampras was going for the Grand Slam record, you know, when he was two or three away, people still thought, well, there's no way anybody's ever going to break Emerson's record. It's pretty right. astonishing, you know, and, and granted, there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, starting with the fact that for a long time, some, a lot of these guys, Borg, Connors, McEnroe, either had shorter careers or they didn't play the Australian Open. And so you literally one out of the four Grand Slams was kind of off the table for a pretty long time. So, yeah, so, but even taking all that into consideration, the fact that Sampras Pete had this vision, you know, that he could do this, that he, you know, he could break the record. Uh, that nobody thought was going to be broken because conditions had changed so much is a huge feat. I think he opened everybody's eyes. I think he set the bar. He took the bar more than any other player, I think, perhaps in the history of tennis, certainly. Uh, He lifted that bar higher than any other player with one single activity or one single act, which was, of course, breaking the record. So I think that's really, really important to, to remember about him. And, uh, you know, his game, I mean, I think basically, you know, I told you before that, you know, that I, I'm really kind of 
I think you can't beat power. Power is the king in tennis, and I think his, you know, his tremendous serve and his explosiveness were just, uh, you know, not pr pretty much incomparable for a long time. Hmm. Sure. Um, Any, yeah. yeah. Oh, favorite anecdote. I think you asked about that too. Gosh, there have been so many. I've covered them so much. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to remember now. Um, you know, I think I think maybe um, visiting him at his house and when we were doing our tapings, uh, that, that was really that was really a lot of fun to do that. You know, th that project. We went over, we talked about everybody and, and everything. Um, and we'd have lunch on his on his little terrace there at his house and just relax. It was just nice to be around him when there was so much less stress and so much less less pressure on him. Uh, I'm sorry, boys, but I'm I'm having trouble coming up with a specific incident. It, no worries. Yeah, it always happens. Whenever you listen to interviews, by the way, always watch for that. People say, well, listen, what's your fondest memory from such and such? <laughs> and the person cannot come up with anything. It's very, very difficult on demand to come up with something like that. Sure. No worries. Sure. Makes sense. I mean, uh, and, you know, and you've covered the game for so long and you've been around several writers and reporters and journalists. Um, I'm curious, is there any tennis person whom you have a really close relationship with or maybe somebody who helped you get up, who was your idol growing up that helped you when you were first coming into tennis? And, you know, how was that? How was that like for you? Well, you know, you know, it's interesting, but the late Bud Collins, um, uh was very supportive of younger journalists. And I think he really, really, I, I remember the first U.S. Open I covered in what, whatever it was, 1968 or something, or 69. Um, actually, it was, it was a year or two later than that, I think. I'm not good at keeping these records. I have friends, by the way, who can tell you how many grand, you know, I think he said, this is my 167th Grand Slam. They will tell you about going somewhere. And I don't even really remember. I don't care. I don't, I'm, I'm not sentimental that way. Anyway, Yes. Um, but the first, uh, for sure, the very first U.S. Open I covered, uh, Bud Collins was incredibly generous and, and helpful with, uh, with, with his knowledge and with welcoming me and, and all that stuff. And, you know, I was like a 21-year-old kid. You know, I didn't know what I was doing, you know. And he was so he – and he really helped a lot of young, good writers along. Mike Lupica was kind of a, a protege of Bud's. Tony Kornheiser – knew and, and, and liked Bud very well. Uh, John Feinstein, the author, you know, a number of people. Bud was very, Bud was a real tennis evangelist. He really, really brought people into the game, made them feel comfortable. So that was, that was really good. Among the current guys, I mean, a very good, you know, I consider myself very good friends with Chris Clary, Tom yeah. Parada, um, uh, Matt Wolanski at ESPN, who's no longer in tennis, unfortunately. Greg Garber, who used to be, write a lot of tennis. So there, there, there are a lot of people but you know those they're frankly mostly professional relationships you know those right. are um, people you know I, I really like dearly but don't necessarily go on vacation with it or everything there's 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 something you know uh, you know life is funny that way i really i, I kind of like the fact that you have these kind of almost like compartments that you have people who you're very fond of but they really are say in your tennis compartment and then you have people you're very fond of who are really in your personal compartment. In my case, I have people I'm very fond of who are in my fishing and hunting compartments because those are the things I do and I have friends who, who I spend time doing that stuff with. So it's, you know, I, I think I, I think um, it's been very rewarding to have long standing experiences with some of these other correspondents in tennis. Yeah. 
Perfect. Um, really well said. And I guess that's a perfect segue to our last and, and final question, Andre. Um, so just to wrapping it up. Um, so what do you what do you like to do when you're not writing? Um, so as you mentioned, you're a big outdoors person with like hunting and fishing. Yeah, mainly fishing these days. Um, almost exclusively fishing these days, to tell you the truth. But uh, I'll always have some deer meat in my freezer, some venison, but uh, that's fairly easily gotten, I guess. But um, but no, I, I love the fly fishing. I'm uh, bay fishing, uh, which a lot of people don't even know what that is, but it's a, it's a certain kind of fishing for for a salmon and steelhead, you know, uh, the great anadromous fish that come back from the ocean and and in our beautiful clear rivers, I'm exclusively a river fisherman, you know, um, either in a drift boat or, you know, drifting down a river and getting out and fishing along the gravel bars, whatever. It's just, uh, I just love flowing water. Um, nothing, nothing better. I fish a lot in the Pacific Northwest as well as in the maritime Canada and um, Oregon, Washington State, places like that. Mm. Amazing. Right. Yeah. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for being so generous with your time today, Peter. I mean, it was a it was a pleasure to finally meet you and discuss tennis and hear your insights. And, you know, hopefully you, our, our listeners really enjoyed this and hopefully you enjoyed it as much as we did. Well, thank you. I did too. Yes, you guys asked very, very on-point questions. Uh, you know, there's, there's, it's just a big, complicated world out there, especially in tennis. So you guys did a good job parsing it down and, and getting it done. Anything else to add, Andre? No, I just just wanted to thank you for your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your um, your honesty in answering the questions as well, and just giving us great insight into uh, essentially the insider of Dennis' world. So yeah, thank you so much. Thank you a lot for your time. And uh, do you have any any social media that we can follow you through? Um, maybe on Twitter. Yes, I'm on Twitter under PT Bodo P T B O D O. And also on Instagram, you can find me, uh, my unusual last name, so it's pretty easy to find me on any of, the, any of these things, Facebook, etc. cetera. Uh, I'm not big, to tell you the truth, I'm not really big on social media in terms of constantly posting or tweeting or anything like that. But, um, yes. but you know, that's, but I have, I'm, a pre, I'm present on all those platforms. So uh, there you go. All right, Peter, all right. We look forward to, you know, doing this sometime again. And we'll see you soon. You know, stay safe and healthy and enjoy the rest of your Sunday and, you know, enjoy the rest of the tennis. You too, Vance and Andre. Thank you very much. Thanks. And uh, thank you for listeners for uh, staying all the way through. And see you all next time. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 